Hymn number 514 was mentioned by Brother Jonathan, and we certainly are happy to mark that and use that at the appropriate time later in their service this morning. It is so good that we've been able to assemble today, this first day of the week, to do so for the express purpose of magnifying and exalting the name of God and His cause. I'd like to take just a moment of personal privilege, if I might, and express a, a very sincere note of gratitude to each and every individual here the kind thoughts, the calls, the cards, the prayers that you have uttered on my behalf over the last week in terms of the surgery, it went well. I'm so very thankful for, for your kind wishes, your well wishes, and thankful that God showered His blessings on me on that occasion. Our family thankful for the recovery as it has gone to this point. I know there are many, though, that are here that continue to be ill, that continue to be suffering in different ways, and we hope each one is able to enjoy better days in health than the days that are ahead. It is along that line. I'd also like to beseech your prayers on another matter. Uh, one week from today, the Center Grove Church of Christ in Jackson County will be beginning a gospel meeting October the 6th through the 9th, and they've invited uh, myself, yours truly, to be the preacher for that meeting. So I'm looking forward to that opportunity, and I would ask that you pray for the success of that meeting to pray that all that's done will, of course, be in strict accordance to the will of God, but that will bring glory to His name in all the ways that would be good. I'm already thankful for those men that have volunteered to take care of things here while I'm away. I certainly appreciate each and every man who is willing to use his abilities and his talents in such a glorious way for the cause of God. Going home. The title of the lesson today, taken from 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5, Going Home. It's a lesson that I thought would be particularly suitable for each of us to reflect and to give some thought to the nature of going home. It is with that in mind, some of these thoughts perhaps will well set us on our way toward the remainder of the lesson that's before us. Isn't it true that there are some words, some phrases... Some thoughts or considerations that seemingly carry with it an especially great note of significance. Maybe it's the word mom or the word liberty. For some, it may be the word freedom or perhaps the word veteran or something that identifies a tremendous note and element of sacrifice. I might suggest to you, though, that at least for many people, the word home fits into that category. It may be the mere mention of home in their mind causes them to rush back years to a time in their youth when they reflect upon a time of tranquility, happiness, and serenity when dad and mom and all things seemed to be well at home. Problems and troubles were far away and there was really nothing that caused any sadness or misery to be found. For others, maybe it's the thought of the present day home they enjoy. After a very difficult day at work, the opportunity to go to a place where loved ones are there, ease and contentment are to be found. Home, I suppose for many people, carries with it a tremendous note and element of significance. I would submit to you, though, that that's also true in a spiritual sense. And really, it is in that way that I would invite us to consider going home for the remainder of the lesson today. You see, the Bible speaks often about going home. It speaks frequently about the nature of what's involved in that transition and what takes place in terms of blessing as it relates to it. It is for those reasons why don't we give some thought also today about going home. 
I hope that this lesson ultimately will be one of great encouragement to each of us. A lesson, in fact, that will remind us, although sometimes we may be apt to forget it, that this world is not our home. The first element for our discussion is this one. You and I likely need no grand reminder to this fact that our residence, our dwelling, our sojourn here is really but brief. I realize that life as it stands before us, especially when we're young, it seems to have so many years, arguably decades, of potential, of promise, of opportunity, of capability, of effort. And it may be at that time that it seems as if what you and I would recognize as death, or at least a departure, is so, so very far away. However, I believe we'd each quickly make this observation that once those years begin to pass and we are more soberly reflective upon it, we even each then would admit that the time we spend here is so very brief. My great-grandmother passed away at the age of 105. I suspect that she was blessed by God to live many years longer than most but yet even she, as those years began to pass away and as I would have opportunity to discuss with her, even as that 104th and 105th years rolled around, she was quick to say, this, they seem like they passed so fast. Our brief residence here is highlighted by some thoughts like these. Wasn't it David, the inspired penman, who in Psalm 90 verse number 10 said, The days of our years are threescore years and ten. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow, and we soon fly away and are cut off. David recognized, didn't he, that on that occasion the number of our years seemingly have an upper limit, and an upper end, and we soon fly away. Not many verses earlier than that in Psalm 89, 47, we're reminded on that occasion how brief our time is. It is with those thoughts in mind, I began to reflect on the ways in which the Holy Spirit, through the various writers in the Bible, compared the duration of life. Here is a listing of those that I was able to find. You'll notice that human life is compared to a vapor in James 4, verses 13 to 15. What is your life? It is even as a vapor that appeareth for a little time and vanisheth away. You and I know, especially in parts of the world like this one, that fog that appears in the morning and yet not very long, soon it's, it's passed away, it's gone. It is evaporated into the air and is no more, and such is the comparison that the Holy Spirit made reference to your life and mine. Furthermore, you'll notice in Psalm 39.5, human life is compared to a handbreadth. You and I know that there are many measures of length. We speak about a mile, a yard, a foot, a furlong, a fathom, and a whole host of others. But a handbreadth in the ancient era was such a brief measure. It's only a short measure, roughly the width of a man's hand. Human life, in the same way, is so very brief. Beyond the vapor and beyond the handbreadth, you'll notice that Job had the nerve, maybe we should say the correctness, to compare human life to a weaver's shuttle. Job even admitted that my life is swifter than a weaver's shuttle. Think about perhaps 
a lady working at a loom or some other kind of machine that weaves together pieces of cloth to make fabric. We often know how fast some of the pieces go. Job says that is the swiftness with which human life so quickly passes away. Beyond that, you'll notice that Psalm 102 verse 11 compares your life and mine to a shadow that soon declineth. We each know that clouds can pass over. Other than that, the sun, as you and I perceive it, moves across the sky. But isn't it true that that shadow soon moves and is no longer where it was? All of these bring us to yet another. Job also, in Job 9.25, likened human life to a post. You might take note that that doesn't refer to a fence post. It refers to what you and I would see as that person who carries mail in the ancient era or at least messages from one location to another and does so with rapidity and swiftness, a post. That's what Job had as the comparison on that occasion. Maybe finally, these two. In Isaiah 40, verses 5 and 6, reference is made to grass that so soon withers away. And finally, that interesting woman of Tekoa in 2 Samuel 14, 14, who referred your life and mine to water that's spilt on the ground that cannot be gathered up again. Maybe all of those highlight in her mind the message that so singularly is easy to see, that our residence here upon this earth, even at what may be perceived as its longest, is still but brief. Our residence here is but short. David said it like this in 1 Samuel 20, verse 3, There is but a step between me and death. No wonder in light of all those things, you and I should well keep in mind the teaching of the Word of God as we see the remainder of this lesson not as an element of discouragement, not as an element of soberness on these matters, but what great hope there ought to be in you and in me in light of this set of thoughts we have begun today. For the next thought is this one. You and I live in an age and certainly in a time in which death is looked upon by so many as an annihilation, an ending, an absolute termination of existence. In fact, I'd like to share with you some thoughts from a gentleman named Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan was perhaps one of the most noted scientists in this present era, a world-renowned astrophysicist. If memory serves me right, he had taught at Cornell for years. He had the opportunity to influence multitudes of students, and in fact, by virtue of the television programs, he was one of the principal writers and authors of the Cosmos series. This man, as he approached his own death, he was interviewed. He died in 1996, by the way, and as the time of that interview came around, one of the questions that was asked was about his view of death. Carl Sagan's de definition, his description of death was this. Death is a mindless, dreamless nothingness. For him, that's all it was. A mindless, dreamless nothingness. You see, Carl Sagan was an agnostic. He didn't feel as if there was sufficient evidence to warrant the absolute conclusion that there was a God. He didn't see there was any evidence to warrant any belief in a life after death. 
He thus had no thought to a resurrection, no consideration of the truth of what you and I would see in the marvelous and majestic Word of God, a mindless, dreamless nothingness. I'm so thankful the God of heaven has allowed you and I to enjoy a pristine view of death more than that. You see, it's no wonder as one gives thought to a definition like this that some of these next conclusions are quickly to be seen. What a void, what an empty viewpoint toward death. In fact, could it not be described as pathetic and miserable? Isn't it true, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, Psalm 53.1. And isn't it true, from Romans 1 verse number 20, the inspired writer there said, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. With all due respect, Carl Sagan had no excuse. But sad to say, he departed this life as an agnostic. He departed this life thinking that this matter of any existence thereafter was simply a dream. It's just not there. The very last thought upon that point is this one. Look at how the Bible describes it. Far from being a mindless, dreamless nothingness, the Bible describes death not as a termination, not as an end, but merely as a departure. In Genesis 35, 18, on the occasion of Rachel's death, remember she gave, or she had rather in the process of giving birth to Benjamin, she died. But the text is interesting in that it says, as her soul was departing. Note the verb departing. There is not the slightest hint of an ending to her existence, merely a departure. And that same thought reverberates on a number of other occasions in the Word of God. Wasn't it Paul who in Philippians 1 verse 23 said, For me to depart and to be with Christ is far better. Paul had no thought in mind about an ending to his existence. Death was merely a transition. It was literally a departure. You and I have often been excited maybe at the thought of departure. When the time for vacation comes, you're able to board the plane or board the car or perhaps the bus. Often there's an element of excitement because you're going to a place that has such excitement in store. A place that there is such a degree of attraction and consideration. Death is described in the Bible as a departure. In the opening verse of 2 Corinthians 5, Paul wrote, For if the earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Does that sound to you and to me as if Paul had in mind an ending, a closure, a termination? Certainly not. For that reason, the next step is in automatic. If death is but a departure, where is that place of abode to which one should look forward? That place that I would call home, the place the Bible calls home, the place that is this heavenly home. Isn't it so sweet that the Bible frequently makes reference and so often from the lips of our Lord Himself about this place that is this location of eternal abode? In Matthew chapter 6, Beginning in verse 19, the Lord Himself said, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, 
where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasury is, there will your heart be also. Jesus, you see, had in mind a dichotomy, a contrast, if you will. There is a place you and I recognize as home here. Maybe it's in Putnam County, maybe it's in Jackson County. That place you and I find, the location of our family. But Jesus said there is a place of home. It's a place where those treasures are to be laid up in a place of such grand excitement. Is it any wonder in light of that that may you and I be forever convinced that heaven does exist? I realize that the day has come when we don't often think about heaven that much, at least in common society. How often has it been since you and I have heard heaven mentioned on the news, at least in a respectful way? I know that there are songs that make reference to it, but frankly, aren't they rather blasphemous? I remember a number of years ago when a country music group had a song out, Heaven is Just a Sin Away. That song infuriated me, just like I'm sure it did you. The sentiment expressed in the song is just so terrible for those that love the thought of heaven, as the Bible presents it, and for those who are keenly intent upon making it to that place of abode. But you'll notice that this place called heaven, it really does exist. It's not just some fantasy. It's not just some no place of adventure. A moment ago in that lesson text from 1 Peter 1 verses 3 to 5, you might recall the word heaven appeared identically in that passage. Let's revisit the way in which that beautiful term appeared. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which, according to His abundant mercy, hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, to a place incorruptible, undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Here in the mind of the Apostle Peter, given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is a reference to a place incorruptible, undefiled, fadeth not away, reserved where? In heaven for you. This reservation, this location, this place in heaven. Notice again the idea in which it is identified and described. It literally is that eternal place of abode which he describes in the next verse, doesn't he? As this place which through faith by salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Heaven exists. Again, as you and I think about the way sometimes heaven is described in a very unpleasant way, an almost dreamlike state, maybe it would be tempting to lose the reality that heaven does exist, but it does. Surveys indicate, at least the most recent ones that I have seen, that roughly three-fifths of all people surveyed are quick to say heaven exists and they believe they're going there. There seems to be a gigantic disconnect between the biblical presentation of heaven and what's involved in arriving at that place versus typical common American thought. Because I believe you and I would be quick to say it certainly seems as if three-fifths of currently those 
that are alive in America shouldn't expect, based on the Bible, to arrive at that place. In light of that, look at what we see at the bottom of that slide and what appears on the next. So many seemingly think that heaven is just an automatic place that almost everyone supposedly is going to when that is not the way that the Bible describes it. It is not simply a place automatically upon death that one goes. For instance, look at this. I would submit that one other aspect of the lesson that I thought worthwhile to include was the strong element of reminder that heaven is made for individuals, people, spirits like you and me. Heaven wasn't made for animals. It wasn't made for angels. It wasn't made for seraphim or cherubim or anything else. It may be heavenly creatures are there. But heaven is a place you and I can go to. Heaven really exists and I can go there and so can you. It ought not be viewed as this location, this place that is far beyond the grasp and reach of human possibility and capability. The Son of God came to make a way possible for you and me to be there. That should fill us with such hope and encouragement. It should fill with us such a great element of desire and incentive and motivation. For you see, we understand that our life here is but brief. And we should look forward to going to a place like this hereafter. Jesus said in Matthew 11, beginning in verse 28, This invitation, this statement we often call that, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Wasn't it Paul also in Philippians 3.20 who in such a compelling way said our citizenship is in heaven? It may well be that I speak before everyone who today is a citizen of the United States of America. We're proud of that fact, no doubt. But ought we not be much prouder of the fact our citizenship is in heaven? That there is a place that we shall describe as this sermon comes to a close shortly. And in so doing, a face, place far better than the current United States of America. No wonder then this text in 2 Timothy 4 should be for you and for me an opportunity to reflect time and again on how Paul looked upon the departure from this life. I have fought a good fight, I finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of life, which the Lord the righteous judge shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all of them also that love is appearing. Paul was able to depart in a peaceful way. Did you hear the peacefulness expressed in those sentiments and thoughts? It is with that in mind. Our hope, of course, is laid up in heaven, Colossians 1.5. And that brings us to really the final stanza of the lesson. We've looked at the brevity of life, the place called heaven. What about the description of that glorious place? What does the Bible say it's like? I mentioned earlier that there are songs that don't do it, do it, do not do it justice at all. In fact, songs that really upset us when we think about what they try to say. But the Bible does describe for us this lovely place. I would invite you to look with me for just a moment at Revelation 21. 
nearly on the last page of the Bible. It's as if God one last time wanted to remind us of this place. We'll not read anywhere near all of these two chapters, but yet just a sampling of some of the verses. I would invite you to look carefully, first of all, at verse 4 of Revelation 21. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. I'm looking forward to a place where there will be no tears of sadness shed. And I'm sure that you are just as I am. Beset us here, we find all kinds of matters that cause tears to stream down our cheeks. Disappointments, heartaches, sadnesses seemingly are abundantly all about us. Heaven, it says, is a place God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. I want to go there. And I know you do too. Beyond that, you'll notice he isn't finished. He says, there shall be no more death. Countless are the times when you and I perhaps have witnessed having to attend the funeral home, the place where the cemetery is, to put to rest those who are loved ones, the bodies, so that they may return, of course, into the dust out of which they're made. It brings a void, a sorrow, it brings a sense of loss to us, and often, of course, it fills our life with such a sense of lacking. He says again here, there shall be no more death. I'm looking forward to a place where there's going to be no more death. I'm looking forward to a place where no longer shall there be the ending of existence in that which you and I call death. You'll notice not only is that statement here made, it's also made again in Revelation 22.3. There shall be no more curse, but the throne of God, and the Lamb shall be in it, and His servant shall serve Him. What a picture. Beyond that, you'll note the verse goes on to say, though in Revelation 21, 4, neither sorrow. How often does sorrow seem to come your way or mine? Announcements made earlier today about a three-year-old with cancer. Difficulties that seemingly surround problems and troubles and heartaches and disappointments and despair. I want to go to a place where none of that exists. And I know you do too. Heaven is real. And we can go there. Verse number 4 goes on to say, There's no crying, neither shall there be any more pain. Don't we have our share of pain in this flesh? There won't be any more back problems. There won't be any kidney stones there. There won't be any issues associated and attached to the other infirmities of the flesh. I'm so excited about that thought, I admit. And I know you are too. The pain that seems to come with us in this life, often affiliated with problems, heart disease, kidney problems, other infirmities of the flesh, and yet... We are assured of a place in which there shall be none of that. We will be fitted with an incorruptible, heavenly, indestructible body that shall know none of the problems that this physical flesh faces. That's an exciting thought, isn't it? As you give thought to that, perhaps the final considerations. Verse number 27 of Revelation 21 closes that chapter like this. 
and there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination, or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. One of the other beautiful considerations about heaven, isn't it true, that there will be nothing there that's sinful. All of those things that are so distracting and so hurtful and so displeasing to God, they won't be there. Immodest dress, cursing and ugly talk, that which you and I have to bear up beneath day after day, never will we have to hear it there. I'm looking forward to a place like that, aren't you? Heaven is a place you and I can go. But let's close the lesson by noting this. Heaven is a prepared place for those who are prepared to enter it. It's not just enough to say, I want to go to heaven. You and I must live in such a way that our life mimics that which God says is required for us to enter that place. There is coming, of course, that day of judgment, which after the departure of the matter of this flesh, you and I shall stand before the greatness of God. And as the books are open, Revelation 20, verses 11 and following, my life and yours judged by the declarations of this book. If you and I have been washed in the blood of the Lamb and have lived faithfully until death, Revelation 2, verse number 10, we will be granted entrance to that place and all the sorrows and all the matters that may have encumbered our life here will be but a distant memory and we'll be ready to rejoice forevermore surrounding the throne of God with no more crying, pain, problems, or difficulties. Are you saved at this moment? Are you also anxious and excited about the thought of going to heaven? I hope that we each are, because it is something that can happen. May I ask, if things aren't well with you, though, at this time, please make them right today. The invitation is about to be extended. Brother Jonathan's going to lead us in this song in just a moment. And during the course of that song, we offer an opportunity, a convenient one, and if you need to respond in a public way to God's invitation that is extended to you, He wants you to go to heaven. He sent His Son to die in order that that might occur. But you, of course, have to respond, and so too do I. Are you a faithfully obedient person to the commandments of the Lord? Have you been baptized at some former time in life, and are you now living day by day under the pure umbrella of the sanctity of Christ? If you are, then your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. You can feel confident about that and you can feel excited about that. But if right now you've never been baptized, you are still yet in your sins, or you have been but you have become unfaithful, either way, right now all isn't well with you. You right now cannot feel confident about heaven. Please make that change today. If we could assist you in your public response, we'd be delighted to do so. But I hope, above all things else, we can close the lesson convinced and convicted yet again. Heaven does exist, and we should want to go there. If right now you need to make sure of that desire, and we could help in a public way, won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?